Welcome to the Voices of Young People podcast, brought to you by Springtide Research Institute. In each episode, we hear directly from young people as they respond to our research and share about the issues impacting their lives. As sociologists and researchers, we see a new story unfolding for young people, one that moves beyond traditional institutional boundaries and requires careful attention to the inner and outer lives of emerging generations. At the intersection of being and becoming, it's the Voices of Young People. Hi there. We're continuing now in season four of the Voices of Young People podcast. I'm Marta Abawaji, the head of community engagement at Springtide. And we have another wonderful episode for you today. This one comes from Tatum. She's finishing out her college degree and already has her next step plans ready because she'll be beginning seminary um, very shortly. And she wants to become a pastor, but she's also super passionate about disability justice. And that informs so many of the places that she finds personal meaning overlapping into professional meaning. And she illustrates a lot of examples about work-life balance that are true for everyone, but need to be given extra consideration for those in the greater disability community. We have just a really uh, enriching conversation that I'm really excited to share with you. And after uh, Tatum and I get to discuss the ways that she's finding meaning and mentorship playing a role in her life and where she's finding growth, we will drop another tip. We've been doing that at the end of every episode and we have a one more yet again to offer you from our executive director, Dr. Josh Packard. This is a research tip um, that you can apply to your own context and it comes from our latest book, Work Life, Helping Gen Z Flourish and Find Balance. So first, dig into the conversation with Tatum and stay for the extra afterwards. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Tatum and I am 22 years old and right now I'm living in Southern California. Um, And yeah, I'm here doing, um, I don't know, here for school and here just because I was born here. But um, yeah, that's kind of the basis of who I am. Fabulous. Thank you, Tatum. I know because I'm talking to you on Zoom and you have pronouns listed. Do you want to offer those? Oh, yes. Um, Yes, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And yeah, I also um, am just really passionate about that kind of stuff of like inclusion, justice, work, all of that. It has been so fun to get to know you a bit more as we prepared for the podcast because your passion and commitment to inclusion across all different identities is um, so evident in in what you're studying and what you're doing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which um, in talking with you, I already see so many parallels um, from our research in a book we put out in 2020 called Meaning Making, as well as this new work life book. So Thank you for being the type of young person who really does bring our research findings to light, that inclusion is a key 
value that young people are looking for in the spaces and the organizations um, that they may participate in. That sometimes it's a make or break factor even on whether they participate. So I'm wondering as we enter the work life conversation, if you um, have a certain uh, type of work, whether that's an industry or a sector that you hope to engage in the future. Yeah, so I um, am going to school right now to become a pastor, and I'm super excited about that. Um, more broadly, though, I do a lot of disability justice work, and that will um, like forever be part of whatever work I'm doing. Um, and so kind of holding those together of um, like a theological and pastoral job presence, whatever that may look like. And then um, this disability advocacy and justice, because I am, um, I'm considered functionally blind and I do a lot of advocacy for different disability groups in general um, and the disability community. So kind of holding both of those together is um, ideally a work environment that I would love. I love, I love the ways that you are wedding two different passions with um, becoming a pastor and studying theology as well as disability justice. And thank you for even just um, sharing more of your own identities. I know Springtide and our audience has a lot to learn and a lot to benefit from your passions and your own experiences. So when you think of an ideal workplace setting, um, maybe this is a church since you are training and in school right now to be a pastor, is there something that you can say that's key, a key characteristic um, that would be, or characteristics, plural, that would be a part of your ideal workplace setting? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, what I mentioned earlier, the idea of inclusion is really big for me. Um, I think specifically um, because of like, because I am disabled, that is a huge part of my life and just logistically needs to happen. If I want to be in this workplace, um, I have to be included and I have to be accommodated for, um, or at least like my accommodations have to be met. And so I think that, um, like personally, that's huge for me, but also, um, inclusion in general, because, if um, if I'm the only disabled person who's ever worked in that field or if I'm like different, um, if a lot of different groups of people have not been present there, then knowing that I just won't feel like it's a full, like well-rounded space. Um, and specifically just because I am so committed to inclusion, um, it is really important to me that that's part of a workspace that I'm in. Fabulous. That's really helpful just to have that as like, this is the explicit expectation and desire. Um, is there something, is there even a more tangible example you could give of how inclusion um, might be incorporated? You, you said that, okay, if I'm the only person who is in the workspace, in the workplace that has a disability, maybe they're not going to be as mindful about other needs, but is there something specific even with um, being functionally blind that you would say, hey, this is really necessary? Yeah, I think specifically, um, 
almost just a like willingness to adapt is important. I also mm. think um I think for me specifically I read documents differently. I process information differently. Like I I do work differently than other people would. And so to just explicitly um explicitly assume that someone has to be able to see or be able to use their eyes in order to do a job doesn't give space for people like me who could totally do it just like differently. Um, and I think I've run into like several situations where, um, I don't know where I even just originally am doubting if I can do it because nobody's ever done something Mm. like that before. And I think, um, one of the reasons I'm specifically um interested in being a methodist pastor and one of one of the reasons for that there's a lot of reasons for that but one of the reasons for that is that they have a um pretty small but a small group of disabled pastors who have done it before and so knowing that um knowing that people have done it before me um i haven't had a lot of examples of disabled leadership in my life if um mm barring on almost none. Um, and so knowing that that's even a possibility is huge. Um, so just like if they've hired disabled people in the past, that would be a huge indicator for me of like, I want to be here because that means these people would care about this situation. Um, but also just if they're willing to adapt, like I can tell pretty quickly in an interview or in a moment of meeting someone, if they're willing to, put that in for me and put that in for other people. And I don't think I would want to be in a place that wouldn't put it in for other people either. Mm-hmm. That is so helpful. Like inclusion is necessary, but the way inclusion gets manifested or needs to be manifested is often in being adaptable. I really, I appreciate that, uh, that example. And just the awareness that it's yes, key for, um, your own experience, but also the experiences of others. In that, we um, we have found that many young people um, really want work that aligns with their overall purpose in life. And I hear that from you explicitly of like, I care about theology. I want to be a Methodist pastor and disability justice goes hand in hand. Um, with that for me. So I already hear meaning being pretty pronounced in what type of career um, you want. So you, you definitely align with, with what our research findings for work life um, found nationally for young people. So, so what are your expectations or your hopes that, that meaning um, will come from a work setting in the future? Yeah, I think my, um, I don't know. That's one of my biggest goals, if not almost a um, like necessity of like, Hmm. if I'm going to be doing this work for me, it needs to be meaningful and it needs to be doing something specifically for others. Like I want, um, I think specifically having understanding of like disability rights is going to make me a better pastor and having a better understanding of theology is going to make me better at doing disability justice. And I think that those things, um, I don't know, those connections are really powerful. Um, but I think that in a workspace, like I can't, 
um, I don't feel like I can do um, either of those things or much of anything without pulling in that meaning um, because it's so fundamental to who I am that I think, um, I don't know, I, it, it isn't even a matter of like, I wouldn't be satisfied in a workplace, but I just don't, I don't think I could work in a space that I couldn't allow those things to sort of guide what I'm doing. And that idea more broadly of inclusion to sort of guide, um, how I live and work is included in that. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing from you directly. Like meaning is work. Like work must be meaningful. That is, you can't even divorce the two. Um, so you said a bit about um, seeing someone in a leadership position who is disabled or maybe being that person in a leadership position who is themselves disabled. I'm wondering for an initial boss, manager, supervisor you might have um, in a workplace setting, whether that is a church or whether that is any other setting, what what do you think needs to happen for a supervisor to make it clear that you're important beyond just what you produce as an employee, that you, Tatum, you as a human are important and have value? How can a boss or manager communicate that or exemplify that? Yeah, I think part of it, there's, I don't know, kind of two things that I'm thinking here. One is that um, just because I do find so much meaning in what I do, however, like whatever that ends up being, um, to like care about and be interested in that. Like if I, if I have an idea, if I have a reason for doing something like I, that is foundational to these things that I deeply care about. And so to engage those ideas and to engage that, um, I don't know, that like passion rather than just like, um, like ignoring it and focusing on like getting a job done or something like that is really huge for me. And I also think me specifically, um, that like ability to even access the workplace and, um, just a commitment to kind of that inclusion, but also just like being, being willing to know, um, I don't know that I can do things differently and that's okay. Um, I think specifically, I run into a lot of applications even um, because this is like a little bit of a loophole, but applications can say like, these are the requirements for the job mm. physically. And yeah. physically, a lot of times the requirements for the job is you must be cited. Well, mm. great. That, um, yeah. That is not going to work. Um, and so I think as, as soon as I see that, I'm like, this place is not going to work for me. Um, mm. And knowing the, like, knowing as I do the statistics or whatever around how many blind people are hired, that's a significant issue. Um, but I think specifically just knowing that, um, like, aside from those things, that spaces are going to be accessible for me, um, knowing that there, like, won't be any flashing lights or moving lights or whatever that hurt my eyes or knowing that, like, I, um, like, I can be working um, in a way that works for me and that, I don't know, I think the, um, community aspect of a workplace is important in that, mm. like, I can do certain things really well and specifically yeah. I can do certain things even better because of my disability than mm -hmm. other people could. 
but there's also things that I can't do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so having that community to bounce off of each other and do um, like, if I can't read a document because it's not accessible, I'm going to need somebody to figure it out for me, but I can be significantly more aware of where people are getting left out or getting sent to the margins because I've experienced that. And so um, in those moments like that, like all of that needs to be encompassed in like what people, I don't know what a manager or what a boss is wanting from me. Like I can't separate that, I guess. That is so helpful, but it's an organizational commitment to community, but it has to be uh, pronounced in the way that a supervisor supervises and that it goes from the very process of like job posting, (laughs) um, that it needs to be that mindful at that stage um, in terms of language, in terms of accessibility, in terms of okay, how many people are we just totally discounting because of the ways we've framed this? So um, yeah, that community level um, is through the whole process of, yeah. of interest in the job into the actual day-to-day life work. Uh, I really appreciate that perspective. We, we know in society at large right now, across the board, that people are spending more time than ever at work. And this is all ages, all demographics. Um, we, we also know that people find meaning in a lot of other ways outside of work. As, as lovely um, as it is to find meaning in a vocation, we also wanna see um, and understand work life as a balance. So, I'm curious what sort of activities or hobbies or passions, projects, um, communities provide a sense of meaning to your life beyond school or beyond thinking about work? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, specifically disability advocacy has been a huge part of my life. That's like um, one of my biggest passions, probably. Um and I currently run a, um, run, runs a funny word, but um, I have an Instagram account um, that is um, at blind person in area. And I also do a lot of, um, a lot of writing around disability on that account, but also um, have published a book called Imperfections that is um, sort of a political satire um, talking about inclusion and acceptance of disabled people. And I think, um, like those are just that specifically is an area that is like really um, challenging for me because I faced so much um, ableism and so many things pushing back against me, but that has become a huge passion because of that. Um, and I think, I think with that, the theology, um, I do a lot of work with disability theology. So like combining, um, combining this disability advocacy and figuring out where, um, like where in the church and where in theological work, um, disability isn't just necessary, um, to like be there, like, oh, we should include disabled people, but like where it brings new understandings and a better, um, way to relate to God and to, Hmm. um, life. And so I think that's a huge passion of mine. And I think that really, um, for a lot of disabled people applies like 
outside of theology too. Like my thing might be theology, but disability can bring, even just in that community sense, like I was talking about, um, like a really cool aspect to any workplace because like we can't, we can't live, we can't work independently and disabled people do this really cool thing of like collectively supporting each other in particularity. And so I think that that's really, um, I don't know, just a really big passion of mine. Love it. That collective support. I see you do a lot on your Instagram account. So I'm going to name drop it one more time since you already did at blind person in area. There's a underscore um, after after all each the word. word. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Except the last word. Yeah. Um, so at blind person in area with underscores in between those words. Follow Tatum if you want to see more. And I'm glad you name dropped your book as well. Yeah. Available on Amazon, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Imperfections. So yeah. Tatum, you're doing some cool projects in the world that definitely yeah. align with what you've already uh, defined for us in terms of your focus and the advocacy work you do. But um, I'm also wanting to know this is this is work this is passion how do you kind of step is there a separation i don't know so much of work-life balance is kind of trying to allow people to find ways to flourish at work and flourish beyond and outside of work um so older employees younger employees they're like i said they're spending more time at work but often older employees specifically and it's not only but often the cases older employees are juggling caretaking um, or these other multitude of roles. And so we think, oh, work-life balance is important for older generations. And we discount why that might be important for young people. So I'm kind of curious how you're gonna answer this question because I think your work and your passion is so aligned. I don't know if there is as clear of a designation, but, but basically how, how do you respond to the assumption that young people can spend more time at work and work-life balance is a topic only for older generations? How, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Oh, I think that's so important. And I think um, to some extent um, that idea that it's only for older generations, at least in some particular instances is rooted a little bit in ableist thinking because mm. I um like I, part of my disability is chronic pain. There are days that I cannot do more than like what I'm already doing or cannot like engage in work in a particular way because I'm in so much pain. Um, and so like I, um, I and like disabled people in general have to be way more aware of work-life balance, um, and what that means. And I think, um, I think people assume that we should be able to jump right in and do all of the things that everybody else can do. And that's just not the case um, mm. with a lot of different people. Um, and I think, um, yeah, for me specifically, I am so passionate about all of this that, um, that while I, um, I can logistically only spend so long looking at a computer screen, dealing with different like moving lights or things like that, or, um, like I can only do so much work um, that takes like whatever different parts of my vision that I need to use. But 
um, or I get in pain. But at the same time, like I want to be thinking about these things that I'm passionate about. And so like, again, like I find different ways of doing it or um, I don't know, or it just is, it has become so much a part of my life that I, I'm thinking about it and talking about it a lot, but the actual balance of like doing the thing physically is super important. And I think I, I think I'm more aware of what my body needs um, Hmm. in regards, not just to my eyes, but to my whole body of like, when I Hmm. need to take a break and when I need to step back from either work or a passion project or whatever it is. Um, Like I am able to be more aware of that. And so I think, um, as I will probably say most of my life, like paying attention to what disabled people are thinking about and talking about is going to be helpful for a lot of people in this situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, that perfectly dispels that assumption right there where you just are able to say, like, when we think this is only particular to a specific generation, that already has a lot of ableism behind it. And here's my experience as a young person. So, yeah, the balance isn't always um, there's sirens where I'm at, but the podcast recording goes on if if those are being captured. There isn't always um, a, a clear line between your passion and the workplace, but there is a clear line in, in knowing, um, capacity or even spoon theory is what came to mind. Um, in what you just said, spoon theory, you can Google that listeners if you want, but it's basically in short, tell me if there's more, um, to it than how I define it. Tatum is that it's taking into account capacity and how much each individual can give to a particular um project or day or task or tasks in front of them yeah it's it's really helpful I think specifically for disabled and chronically ill people because it um somebody made up the thing of like I have so many spoons a day and chronic illness makes it so that I have to um distribute them um specifically and disabled and chronically ill people know how to recognize the distribution of spoons better than um like better than other people because we have to like we're mm. to be aware of what um like if getting ready in the morning takes a spoon and eating and making breakfast takes a spoon then like we only have a couple spoons left for the rest of the day so like how are we going to use those um and so i think that um that's something that i talk about with my like disabled and chronically ill friends all the time when <laughs> we yeah and memes back and forth but also we're like very serious on what um like but even before interacting in passion stuff that we're like excited about we're like do you have enough spoons for this right now um and so that like I don't know that would be amazing if um like workplaces took into consideration those sorts of things fantastic thank you for defining it um so much better than I did throughout the course of the day how those considerations um, have to be made on a personal level and how much more um, mindful and helpful and inclusive it could be to have an organization maybe have that language and that awareness as well so yeah I think spoon theory and work life might have some cool yeah, cool definitely. parallels for people to dig into further on their own um, okay so when you think about your career decisions when you think about different paths you might take who do you turn to is there a particular person or persons um yeah I think definitely a couple professors in my life um there's been 
two or three professors in particular who I um, have really turned to just because, um, to be completely honest, in a um, in a very real sense, I was told in high school that I shouldn't go to college, that I should mm. that it shouldn't happen. Um, particularly because it was going to be really hard to get accommodations. Um, not because I couldn't do wow. it, but because it would be ridiculously hard to do it. Mm. Um, and so being told that I didn't even consider graduate school, that was not even an option on the table. Sure. Um, and there were a couple professors, um, a, a lot of professors asked and said, do you want to go to grad school? And I said, no, I, I don't feel like I can. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But a couple professors, um, stopped me and were like where is that coming from you are loving this school you are loving like even despite the fact that it's incredibly hard to get accommodated like you're loving um like you're loving your experience like you would love moving further in school you would love moving further in that and so um those professors I've learned to like really trust and like um I don't know pay attention to what they're saying about me when I because of this like internalized ableism, don't even know what I can do. And I think kind of like I mentioned, I haven't had any, um, I really have not had much of any disabled adults, if any, in roles that, um, in roles that I want to be in. So like, if I want to be a pastor, I've never had a disabled pastor. Mm. Um, I've never even had a disabled youth leader that at least is mm. like recognizes that they're disabled, um, invisible disabilities that they don't disclose could totally be there, but sure. like disclosed disability that um, they talk about, like, I don't have, I don't have any person in my life like doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very conscious when I lead a group of like six middle school girls at church or when I like do whatever, um, I'm very conscious of like, what are they thinking of me? What, um, what does it mean that I'm disabled in this position? And so I think having these um, specific pastors or professors and a pastor who not only, um, not only think about that with me and encourage me to, um, do better, but also recognize the, um, hard parts of the, um, ableism that I faced and also like are willing to dive into disability justice and disability theology with me, um, and be like, Hey, this could be really cool. Like, how do we want to explore this? And like, kind of honor my experience um more than like just saying oh that's like Tatum and that's her thing um but being like yeah. no like really cool like how can we engage in this has been um life-changing that's been mm, wow those are the people in my life that I would um like that I would go to in a heartbeat to like know about myself because they're the ones that I feel like um like think that I can go further and think that I can do more than I even necessarily think because I haven't seen people like me in those positions. Um, and so I think that's really important. Oh, that's massive. I, I really appreciate, um, that you have people who, even if disability isn't their personal experience, like you said, they've dove in to learning and joining you in advocacy. Um, but how, much more powerful it will be for you to be that leader for someone else um, that you haven't gotten to experience directly. Like you said, not even a youth leader, not another minister or leadership position as, as wonderful as some of these mentors or professors have been, they still haven't um, 
walked in your shoes and maybe walks in your shoes is a support metaphor right there, but they haven't had your direct experience. Um, so this next question kind of builds off of, of that idea. And I'm excited for you to be that leader um, for other young people. And it sounds like you already are for those middle schoolers um, that you've come alongside. So that, um, that sort of growth mentality is explored in work life. How have you experienced personal growth? And I would define personal growth here maybe as like goal setting, self-discovery, self-improvement. Um, is there a person or persons, and maybe it's those professors you've already mentioned, maybe it's someone else who's been a trusted adult to, to help you in that personal growth aspects? Oh yeah, those, those professors that I mentioned are probably um, one of the biggest like um sets of people I guess that are like that in my life I think I um I also have a really amazing core group of friends who are also um also have like various disabilities or chronic illnesses and we are able to support each other in this really powerful way the disability community a lot of times defines it as collective care um and like it's when like your particular body or life needs something and you're able to engage in community to collectively care for each other. So like, um, I don't know when, like when I need something, my friends are able to like, like send me a text if like there's a flashing light in the cafeteria or something like that, that would be a problem for me. But then I'm able to like do the same for them and like engage in that. And that's been, um, that's been super supportive to personal growth for me because I, um, I don't know, because then it's not a negative thing. People automatically assume that disability is a negative thing when really it's this super powerful part of who I identify as. Mm. And I think, um, I think that just really gave me that back. It gave me the ability to be like, yes, this is powerful and this is meaningful. Um, and that like, we can support each other in these ways that we wouldn't have even recognized. Um, and it's made our friendships so much deeper. Um, and so I think that's been really helpful. I think um, those professors have been super helpful in just like kind of calling me to more than my internalized ableism was even letting me think that I could be. Um, and I think, yeah, I just think um, I'm a very community-based person. And so I think that's been a huge part of my personal growth is just in those relationships. Ah, I love it. You defined like the next part of the question I was going to even ask if besides people, if there are communities. And so in defining collective care in that way, um, yeah, you just beautifully articulated how community settings can also um, enable and nurture that personal growth. So, so well said. Tatum, is there anything else you want to add or expound on? This conversation has been so important for Springtide to engage and to hear from you directly, but I want to make sure um, we've been able to cover anything that you, you wanted to bring to our audience. Uh, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. I think a lot of, um, a lot of my disability advocacy work that I do just revolves around um, like places, regardless of the place, any workplace, really knowing that, um, 
not only that, like, yes, you should hire disabled people because that's inclusion, like, cool, great, but, like, also, like, disabled people can bring something to the table that is, like, that collective care or that, like, awareness of, um, like, marginalized people groups or even just the fact that it takes adaptability to accommodate. I've been living in that adaptability my entire life. I know how to adapt and I know how to problem solve mm-hmm. in ways that people do not understand because I've had to encounter that in almost every aspect of my life. And so I think um, more than just like, let's hire disabled people because they're like, that's a good thing to do. It's like, no, these are all things that bring every workplace um to a better standard, but that takes accommodation and inclusion and like connectedness. Mm. What more is there to say? I feel like that's the perfect mic drop of, of it's not just about hiring and then being done, but seeing the overall asset benefit for the company, the organization at large, when inclusion is actually embodied, when accommodations and adaptability isn't just put the onus on uh, a disabled person who, like you said, that's already been their experience, but having that be even a company culture um, is is what I'm hearing from you. So, so well said, so needed. Thank you. Thank you for sharing um, parts of your story, parts of your advocacy and commitment to justice for disability uh, specifically. And we're so excited for you in whatever next steps come with your continued education in graduate school. Kudos on taking that um, step in the coming seasons and um, in your hopes and plans to become a Methodist pastor. We're cheering, cheering you on from afar at Springtide and thank you again for your insights today. I loved that conversation with Tatum, and I trust that you got a lot from it as well. As promised, here we have that tip from our work-life research coming at you from our executive director, Dr. Josh Packard. Here it is. We all know networks are important. They're important not only to help you get a job, but they're important once you're in a job. In fact, the fancy academic term for networks is called your social capital. And it's very deliberately chosen word, the idea that capital in in the social realm that can be spent in the same way that that traditional forms of capital money can be spent. And this can be, you can invest in social capital, and then you can sort of trade it in um, to help you, you know, to, to, to move forward in life. And crucially, there are two distinct kinds of social capital that matter when we think about helping young people to find meaningful work or even find meaning at work. And on the one hand is bonding social capital. Bonding are your close relationship, your friends, your family, etc. And on the other hand is your bridging uh, social capital. These are your extended networks, a friend of a friend. Um, you know, it's a sort of your your uncle's boss or something like this, a couple of people removed from you. I like to think of it very shortly as like, who would lend you money and who wouldn't and the people that would lend you money or that you would lend money to that's your bonding social capital and the people that you know but you wouldn't lend money to that's probably your bridging connections but really critically the it's your bridging connections that matter when we think about getting jobs um, consistently over and over again these are the networks that open up new opportunities for you and also really crucially 
these are the social networks that a lot of people who are um, low income, first generation college students, otherwise under-resourced potentially in some ways, uh, will lack more so than people who have had different abilities and advantages and privileges in their lives. As advisors then, as mentors, when you're looking to invest in the, the sort of career of a young person, we want to do that work of helping to expand their networks um, in, some, in some really uh, intentional ways in the fields where they're looking to work. And as employers, you know, we, we understand that when we hire somebody, we're getting more than the practical skills that are written down on their resume. In part, one of the things that um, that we're expecting people to bring is, you know, sort of their critical thinking skills, different insights, perspectives, and inputs. But we're not going to be able to activate all that if we're not also helping them to develop their social networks to understand how those things fit into the overall scheme of the work that we're trying to get them to do. So in either case, it's really those bridging uh, connections that we want to make sure and invest in, sometimes through formal programs and sometimes just by making sure that we're not assuming they exist and instead doing the one-on-one -on -one work of making that introduction, making that phone call, setting up that lunch. Uh, going to coffee with them and the other person. So keep that in mind. How can we help young people develop more bridging social capital? Visit springtideresearch.org to hear more voices of young people and access our full study on young people's expectations and experiences of work titled Work Life, Helping Gen Z Flourish and Find Balance. Sign up for our newsletter and be the first to learn about our upcoming research. Today's show was produced by Marta Abuaji and TJ Birnbaum, with original music by high school student Christian Unthink. Special thanks to our guests today and all the young people whose perspectives and insights make our research possible. Remember to find us on social media at We Are Springtide and learn more about our brand new writer in residence program at springtideresearch.org. Thanks for listening.